everyone. Before we start our season three finale, I want to draw your attention to our feedback form. We want to hear from you on what topics we should cover in the next season of this podcast. We produce this show for you, our listeners, and we're wondering, is there anything about the aging experience that you want to know more about? So if you have just a couple minutes, please visit the episode description to find a link to our survey and tell us what you want to hear on the show. Your feedback is extremely valuable to us. Now, on to the show. You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. In season three, we interviewed 12 researchers about various topics in aging, ranging from engineering to exercise science to infectious disease and more. So today in our season three finale, we're revisiting each guest and their answer to our latest standing question. What challenges or barriers do researchers have to overcome to see real improvements in health span or healthy aging research? I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. First up is Assistant Professor Sarah LaTemplio of the Department of Human Dimensions of Natural Resources from our episode about the restorative effects of nature on the brain. Yeah, I would say, honestly, for the nature human health research, I think the biggest, I don't know, hurdle that we have to get over, we already talked about a little bit, which is that we're only researching this on a really narrow subset of the population. And I think if we really want to say, um, even beyond, you know, we talked about race and uh, ethnicity and sex differences and gender differences, even with the aging research, (laughs) We, we've really only explored the nature effects mostly in kind of these young white college students. And I think that in order to um, maybe see what the highest benefits are or to just get the most out of this, we really need to be expanding our scope, um, both in terms of different populations that we are accessing and just different stages of the lifespan that we're accessing. Josiane Broussard, director of the Sleep and Metabolism Lab at CSU, from our episode on the importance of sleep and why it's a key behavior to every process in the body. The, the challenge, I guess I would say right now in our field is shifting from we know the consequences to what are we going to do about it, right? I think that's the next step for our field to kind of push the edge forward because we we know now there's all these impairments. We've really gone deep into some of these highly controlled studies, but moving out into the real world so we can actually make changes and start to address the the sleep and circadian challenges. I think that's the really big next step for for us. Yeah, for for my lab for sure. Yeah. Jutsia Wan, 
an assistant professor in CSU's School of Biomedical Engineering on the aging heart and tissue engineering as a therapy for heart failure and disease. Yeah, I think this major challenge to me, it comes back to the unique uh, property of the cardiac muscle cells, which is this type of cell, it's so difficult to replicate itself. It loses its capability. So I think I hope we can find some new ways to really boost the population. Uh, perhaps first find some good ways in petri dish in the lab, and then we can implement in the real tissue in in through either preclinical or animal research or even clinical trials. So the renewal potential of the cardiac muscle cells, I think it's the big challenge. And I, like I mentioned, there are two branches now in this field. You can either try to uh, improve the differentiation and the maturation of the cardiac of the stem cells into cardiac cells, or you can somehow try to fix the current population. So I think we should keep our minds open with all kind of possibilities. Yeah. So that is the the main challenge to to uh, in the cardiac regeneration. Uh, of course, it's super important for the healthy aging, and the other. Um, the other breakthrough I think that will help in the promoting healthy aging in heart is I think we should have a better understanding of maturation and aging of the heart, probably through a much bigger scope. For example, I know there are groups who focus on, uh, <clears throat> on, the, on the congenital heart diseases. There are groups who focus on the aging population. So I think, for example, my group, we have some data. We don't know the whole picture yet, but we already noticed that if we compare the middle-aged heart versus the young adult heart, we already see some changes in the mechanical properties, which means I think we all know that aging doesn't occur in one day. It's a continuous process that will lead to some accumulative effects. So I think if we can understand better about throughout our life, the aging process in the heart, especially what, what can we do in our middle age, among 30s, 40s, that we can try to help to prevent or delay the aging of the heart that we, we really see in, at the senior age, those, those uh, adverse events, if we can somehow have a good way to deal with that, I think we're, we're going to make a huge impact. Stephen Aschel, a quantitative psychologist at CSU, from our episode about depression, cognitive decline, and data science methods for predicting cognitive changes. That to me is really easy to answer, and I think, um, but difficult to implement. And I think we really need true lifespan approaches at this point. So often we have information from small sample studies of children. We may have information from large sample studies of older adults, 
but there aren't that many studies with good information about middle-aged persons because we're all too busy with you know families or careers to be bothered to participate in these studies um, I'm guilty of that myself um, so that's a part of it but also it's just you know it's it's expensive and difficult to track any given person across a lifespan but I think a lot of these um, a lot of the factors that go into um, early early cognitive decline or early onset of cognitive decline elevated depression risk things like that those happen well before what we refer to as old age or you know yep. retirement age however you want to put it so um, I really think we need more information about middle age adults and to be able to kind of track progress over time and um, a more nuanced understanding of the temporal dynamics of how these things unfold um, across the lifespan. Next is Associate Professor of Pathobiology, Candace Mathiason, from our episode about prions as models for Alzheimer's disease in humans. We have a one giant conundrum, and that comes back to that misfolded protein, whether it's infectious and transmissible or whether or not it's causing Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. We don't know what it looks like, and we're unable to know what it looks like because it, it aggregates together in these big clumps, and we're not able to bring it down to that monomer, that one unit, to be able to identify it. Identifying what it looks like would really help us better understand that mechanism of of conversion from the good to the bad form of the protein as well as how we can break that up and not permit that to happen so there have been a couple breakthroughs in, in the prion field in better understanding what that structure looks like but we still have a lot of work to do so i think that's probably number one the the number two one is a diagnostics and coming back to how can we determine when an individual starts developing a, a less healthy life um, based on amyloid production and if we were to develop therapeutics of whatever kind that might change that, how would we know that it's working? So two things, that's the protein structure itself, and then how to detect it in the easy to way detect it. Um, I, I would think of things like saliva and blood, um, which would be easy for, easier for us to access those samples from people. Dr. Ed Chan and Associate Professor Alan Schenkel from our episode titled Non-Tuberculosis Infection, a lung disease that is becoming more common in adults over the age of 50. Yeah, certainly with, with new technology, just in the last few years, this, this technology has revolutionized the way we study you know, a lot of, of diseases in people because from just a small sample, you can get a, a much more detailed idea of, of all of the complex interactions that the cells have with each other and with their environment in that tissue. And that gives us the chance to find new therapies um, that we might not have previously considered um, or maybe had discovered in other places to, to try to treat these chronic diseases. I think the most horrible part for these patients is that some of them have been fighting these infections for a decade um, with no relief whatsoever. The antibiotics haven't proved to, to, to do the trick by themselves. And maybe if we figure out a way to help the immune system adjust or you know, control itself, uh, maybe we can help these patients too. 
Yeah, um, just to add to that, um, I think education is very important. Um, education, not only for clinicians, because even to this day, uh, we still see patients refer to National Jewish, uh, where their providers, their doctors told them, oh yeah, you got this NTM in your sputum, but your chest X-ray looks fine. So, and it's just, uh, it's just a colonizer. We find this in the environment. So don't worry about it, you know? So I think education for pro providers is important to tell them that, yeah, because this infection moves so slowly, people get put off guard, you know, and, and think it's not so important. And also education for the patients. Once they get the infection, they need to know how they get the infection in the first place so that they avoid getting a repeated infection. And it's very important not only take your antibiotics, but to do airway clearance because they have abnormal lung air, airways. They can't clear the secretions as well. And it sets up a sort of vicious cycle of more, more secretion, more NTM, and more inflammation and lung destruction. So um, education for the patients to not only take your antibiotics, but do your daily routine of airway clearance. Greg Ebel, a professor and director of CSU's Center for Vector-Borne Infectious Diseases, from our episode about CSU's work to prevent COVID-19 in skilled nursing facilities. What my field is is virology, and in particular, it's arbovirology. And so, um, and I'll answer this as a person who's working in northern Colorado who is involved in West Nile virus service. So, um, so what I think we need to understand better is the role of um, viruses in um, cognitive decline as as we age. So many of us here are exposed to West Nile virus uh, during the summer, and every you know every summer there's another chance, right? So um, what we don't really what we think we're what we're starting to understand about these viruses. They, the, traditionally, it's thought that you know you're infected, either you get really sick and die, or you get really sick and you recover partly, or you never get sick and or you just get a little bit sick, right? There's this spectrum of illness. What we're starting to learn, I think, is that um, across that spectrum of acute illness, there can be, uh, you know, brain damage. Like people who are asymptomatic, if you do imaging studies of their brains, you can see uh, effects of virus infections. And so I think that we don't understand nearly enough about these supposedly acute viral insults, um, even that are clinically inapparent in the context of, of aging. Mm -hmm. And that's important for West Nile virus, but there's a whole lot of other you know, viruses that can cause, uh, you know, neurological problems. And, um, and we just don't know enough about long-term consequences. Shelby Osborne, a postdoctoral researcher in CSU's HealthSpan Biology Lab, from our episode titled Muscle Strength and Alzheimer's Risk. Just, I think this kind of points to the whole reason that I want to do this is the fact that nothing works in isolation. Yes. Like there is not a single thing in our body that acts alone. Mm -hmm. The body is highly redundant to kind of be able to address different things. Like if some system fails, there's usually one that can take out, take over. Mm -hmm. It might not be as effective, 
but it still keeps the body going. Yeah. So that is, that's been my biggest kind of pet peeve and soapbox with this is yes, Alzheimer's is a brain centric disease, but there's so much more that goes into it that I feel like part of our inability to find a solution is that we're only focusing on one system when it's not that simple. Like biology is a messy field and it's difficult to look at, but that's like the beauty of it Mm -hmm. is that we're not, I don't think we're meant to know everything. Mm -hmm. I don't, but we're not going to know close to anything by isolating things out and not taking into consideration other aspects. Ava Siegel, founder and CEO of the health tech startup Steady Systems, from our episode about balance fitness for a longer health span. And I start by thinking about the problem that fall prevention and balance is really one of the least funded major public health problems and is only expected to grow. And so this really highlights the challenge that we need to change the narrative related to balance health and fall prevention and course correct this enormous problem. But the second part of that is we need to make these changes in an equitable way. And so I think about how can we do this? And I think the first ability, or the first challenge is to look at education and really helping people understand what is the importance of balanced health and that there is actually hope that you helping people recognize that proactive approach can be really effective and also providing people with resources that are affordable. So people that might be less uh, or have less immediate access to healthcare, living in rural communities, maybe physical therapy three times a week just isn't feasible. So how do we bring this into people's homes and, and make it more realistic? And then you have to look at the value of individualized care. And I think appreciating the fact that balance skills are really different and are affected more than just by age alone. And so having tools that can better assess where someone is in their balance skills today and design a program that really targets what they need. And I this makes me think about how we address balance or heart health in, uh, in the population. We don't wait for a heart attack to address heart health. In, Rather, we incrementally measure cholesterol and then we adjust health habits accordingly. So I see a lot of parallels with balance health and being able to address balance long before a fall occurs is is really important. And so this really emphasizes the need for customized training and engaging and effective solutions that can promote this longer health span in a creative, fun and accessible way. Ronica Rooks, a professor of health and behavioral sciences at CU Denver, from our episode about racial and ethnic health disparities that affect older adults. It's like what we've already been talking about, that the major challenge, I think, in gerontology is addressing racial, ethnic, socioeconomic status, health disparities across multiple chronic conditions. And in fact, more of this research is now addressing sort of innate societal racism and discrimination across many sort of social vulnerability characteristics as well. And so a lot of these things still need to be addressed with uh, health disparities research and as a challenge 
particularly even for older adults. So. Finally, Dr. Katie Creevy, a veterinarian and founder of the Dog Aging Project. From our episode about how the Dog Aging Project is advancing canine longevity and health span. So I think the thing that excites me the most is, is a pretty practical thing as a dog owner, dog lover, and dog veterinarian. I am excited about our ability to increasingly understand what the aging experience of dogs is and, and get rid of this experience that you and I have alluded to several times in this conversation that something is, well, it's just old age, right? Well, this, we expect he's just getting old. Well, this, you know, this was going to happen. He's just getting old. I think that there is a way for us to acknowledge the inherent mortality of ourselves and our dogs while also saying, let's maximize the joy and the value of every minute that we have. And yes, he is just getting old, but that doesn't mean there's not something we can do to understand or support or care for the dog, whether we can adapt the way we work with the dog, the way we manage the dog, the way we feed the dog, the way we assist the dog, as well as adapting our expectations about what might happen next for that dog. But I think we can transform this conversation away from kind of a resignation or acceptance. Well, it's just old. That's just what happens and transform it into a way to maximize the joy. And I hope that we're doing the same thing for ourselves, right? So by learning these things about dogs and finding ways to maximize the joy of of every minute of our dogs' lives, we will be able to translate those experiences to people and do the same things for ourselves. All right. So there you have it. This is what our guest had to say about barriers to expanding our knowledge base around aging. And there is one theme in particular that I want to highlight from the past six months of conversations I've been having, which is representation in research studies. This came up more than any other answer this season in terms of who is currently participating in research studies and who do we need to include to get a more holistic understanding of various aging trajectories. Some groups we heard mentioned this season include middle-aged adults, individuals from racial and ethnic groups, those who live in rural areas or low-income socioeconomic areas, women, older adults, and the list could go on. Suffice to say, if you are at all interested in becoming a part of aging research here at CSU, please go to our website and sign up for our research registry. That is a place where you can tell us what kinds of aging studies you would like to be a part of. And we promise to only contact you when we have a researcher who is recruiting participants within those areas. Now, Living Healthy Longer will be taking a summer break before the beginning of the next academic year. So we hope that you enjoy the rest of your summer 
And do not forget, please go visit our feedback form that is linked in our episode description so you can have a chance to tell us what kind of topics we should cover in the next season of Living Healthy Longer. If you are a longtime listener all the way from season one, episode one, or if this is the first episode that you're tuning into, we thank you for listening and for following along and we will see you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.